Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Someone who's excited that Korean food is having a quote-unquote moment, I'll take that over the person who is, oh no, why did you like reveal our secrets? You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Eric Kim is back in the show, and we have such a great time catching up with him, including his recent work at the New York Times and the release and warm reception of his New York Times bestselling cookbook, Korean American. There is always an open invite to have Eric on the show, and we are glad he accepted. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Eric Kim. Welcome back to the Taste Podcast. Feels good to be back. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to have you in. Uh, you, uh, I think our episode 70, we we spoke about a year ago. Yeah, wow. It So much happens in a year. It's kind of scary. <laughs> it's scary. It's been, a, it's been a good year. Yeah, it's been a good year. It's been a very new year. Yeah. New, new experiences every day, for sure. Well, for, I wanted, you know, we spoke a lot about your book, Korean American, that was coming out in a few months um, after we spoke. We talked a little bit about what you were expecting, but I wanted to just see it's been out uh, for a little bit now, your book. So tell me a little bit about how you're feeling right now, now that the book is out into the world, Korean American. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm actually just really enjoying the downtime. I'm having a great summer, so I don't want to sound ungrateful. The the last few months have been amazing from, I don't know, February through the launch and then till about May, early June. I was just, it felt like every weekend there was some kind of event. And I loved it. I love meeting readers and had a great time. But it was so nice to kind of look around me one weekend and realize that I finally had a weekend off. Mm -hmm. And then I had another weekend off. And (laughs) so I'm in this really creative space. I'm trying to use this energy to you know, pop out book two, but uh, I'm already. just enjoying it. I'm enjoying the, the rest, yeah. <laughs> Smart. I mean, for to, to have book two already kind yeah. of teed up, but uh, acknowledging that you need to have, have that space is yeah. very smart. Yeah, I think um, the thing I learned, especially about this year, was that I need rest in, in order to function. I mean, I used to have colleagues who would, um, who kind of worried about me because I would, I would like burn the what's it the burn the midnight oil. Yeah. I'm really bad at idioms. Or <laughs> burn the candle from both, both ends. ends. That's what something. my mom always said. Don't burn yeah. the candle at both ends. Yeah. She's always like that. It's <laughs> good advice. And I was always just so used to doing that because um I don't know, I always stumbled through school that way and was always rewarded for it with like an A and then, you know, those all nighters that you do for papers and, and what's funny about our jobs is it never really changes. We're still turning in essays and yeah. uh, we have to ask for extensions and then we don't get graded on it. People more, it's more like, like thousands of people read it, but I, I feel like, um, it's exactly the same. <laughs> Listener Eric has stepped into something, um, that we, we feel as, as writers, um, it's like homework all the time. Yeah. And you almost, I mean, I am used to it by now. I've been doing yeah. this for like 18 years. Yeah. You, f- you get used to like that yeah. looming deadline, yeah. that paper deadline as you may call it. Yes. I think I got to a place, I've evolved to a place where I, <laughs> it no longer feels like a deadline that's scary and more like I'm really enjoying the process. That sounds so annoying, but I mean, <laughs> with with each story, I, I've been having so much fun just leaning into the job. Now that book events have like slowed down for the summer, yeah. namely I said no to everything, <laughs> so I could pick up again in the fall. But um, it feels good to be able to focus on my my job now and my my craft. Yeah, and like let's talk about your New York Times column because we were talking off mic that you're just about to release a story that will be out in the world as we as we, you know, publish this interview. Yeah. What is it? Tell us about it. Oh yeah. It. I actually have two stories going up this oh, cool. week. I'm really excited about them. Yeah. Um 
The Chicago Dog is going to be a cover story. <laughs> Love that. Cover story on Thursday. Ah, um, oh, the Chicago hot dog. So much yeah, to say. Yeah, and I, I learned so much. It was my first time in Chicago. It was my first time feeling like a grown-up, like, big boy journalist. I mm. I, I, I flew out. Yeah. <laughs> it's not so stupid, but I, I ate 11 hot dogs and um, in the span of 48 hours and lost weight. I actually felt, like, yeah. great. You know, there's so many vegetables on that hot dog. Yeah. Right? Um, and I just I, I interviewed some of the most interesting people and, and kind of wrote a little... Um, pastiche, I guess. <laughs> I can't like, wait to read. Do yeah, you, do you dress hot dogs? Whoa, what? Hot dogs. Is Are those vegan? No, hot dogs uh, was this hot, hot dog, dog place that is oh, long closed. Right, 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 so right, right, right. No, no, no. It's a bit of a legacy in Chicago, but it's right. long closed. Oh, so, yeah. Well, so what I did was more of a snapshot of lesser known kind of Chicago dog places. I sort of... Cool. Didn't really hit the ones that people know. I, I sort of like followed the story based off of what, what pe- locals told me. Yeah. And ended up with this thing that I'd never written like that. So it was really fun. It yeah. was just fun to be a reporter. I was really trying to channel Priya Krishna and like Kim Severson, like my colleagues, you know, yeah. the people who do that every day. Um, and it's fun to flex those kinds of muscles because because um, once a month I also write for the magazine. But those are the personal essays that are also incredibly fun. But sort of exercises a different part of my brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the other story? Oh, the uh, the other story. I'm really excited. I don't you didn't tell me about this. I'm, I didn't I'm tell curious. you about this yeah. other story, but I'm really excited about this one because <laughs> I've been wanting to write it for years. Um, it's about my friend who was a famous ASMR eating sounds kind of YouTube star. She died of pancreatic cancer in 2019 though. Oh, man. And you know, she was she was this virtual friend I had who was one of my best friends. And I I texted her almost every day. She was a big part of my life, and when she when she died, which was before the pandemic, by the way, um, she missed all that. <laughs> I think, I think I really wanted to figure out how to put it down on paper, and I actually tried to once, but that editor cut it out, and and, sh- and that person was like, "I think you should, you should like hold on to this until you're ready to write." I like about that it. advice. Yeah, it was good advice. It came from a place of empathy. I think um, at the time I was really annoyed because I was like, "How dare you!" tell me how to process this but actually it obviously it, it worked out because I think saving things is, is not a bad thing my agent always says time is power and I, I like sitting on things especially yeah. if I want to write about it in a more complete way later so that essay goes out tomorrow and it it's accompanied by a chocolate cake that is also like very delicious I'm really like proud of that recipe but it's a chocolate cherry cake oh cake. wonderful yeah well, we'll talk about one of your cakes from Korean American that I've made many times which is shocking <laughs> to me even right. but I want to hear about the takeaway from the book writing process what mm. would you tell uh, yourself uh, four years ago when you five years ago when you started writing your book what would you tell them now that you know what you know because you don't know until you know yeah and yeah. book one is the toughest yeah. I think and uh, I'm sure you have a lot of great advice for your past self. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I don't, I don't know that I do. I, I feel like I would just make the same mistakes over sure. because um, they've become habits. But I think the one thing that's important is a prudent person would write everything down as you're doing it. It's like it seems intuitive, but the way I kind of develop recipes sometimes is I like cooking through it, and I like the organic way in which my hands move and and then I record what I did later but sometimes later it becomes like a drink with my my dad or like you know it becomes like all these other things so that by the time I get to my computer I'm too tired and then I wake up and realize I hadn't written down that recipe test I did that a lot for the cookbook yeah. which just meant I cook things many many times but I also just wasn't as disciplined as a recipe developer yet because I hadn't done the times job yet um mm-hmm. and the times job really man that that makes you um a more proficient cook and a more proficient like recipe developer pretty quickly because it just comes at you very quickly. Yeah, because you're pretty tight deadline because you're doing it every day. Yeah, nine to five. You know, it's it's pretty, and I'm so grateful for that. I I had a moment where I cooked a Christmas dinner last year, and I had been doing the job for maybe almost a year, and I don't I'm not explain it, but like I was able to make like eight, nine, ten dishes in a couple hours, mm. and I was like. I think I've, like, actually just gotten better at cooking. I think, like, I've, you know, literally, like, you can get better at it mm-hmm. or more efficient anyway, and that felt really empowering. Well, knife skills at least. I'm sure yeah, you, you can really, your knife yeah. skills are, are really refined. But, like, Not you better. probably, I would imagine, like, know about time 
management better. Yeah, time management time, a little bit. Right? Oh, you'd be surprised. But yeah, I think yeah. So. Oh, <laughs> God, it's impossible. <laughs> I think for the most part, yeah. Oh. It's like I, I time it so that everything gets on the table pretty pretty hot. But um, that's also something that's really fascinating. I, I mean, I'm speaking from a place of um, – I didn't go to culinary school. I didn't really work in restaurants in a hardcore way. And – and it's weird that people call me a chef now. And, you know, you go on TV segments and your your green room always says, like, Chef Eric Kim. And there's a point where I was like, oh, maybe I should correct them. But then later I was like, when when do I get to become a chef? I don't know. Am I a chef now? Like, I, I don't know. I do I'd, it, say, I'd say so. You're, I do it you... enough. But, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting um, – I've always found that um, – that tension fascinating between sh- the word chef and home cook. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. But uh, do you ever see yourself working in a professional kitchen? Like at least to get those chops mm. and maybe actually get the capital C chef title? Uh, hmm. I think it's not of interest to me. I think there's probably incredible value there. But I think for what I do, like a recipe developer is is not the same thing as a chef. And similarly, a chef is not a recipe developer. So – I feel like I've, I'm being trained for recipe developer and for, like, that specific job, yeah. which involves a lot of cooking, but it's just a different kind of cooking. So I don't know that – that's the only reason I wouldn't I wouldn't do it because I'm – I feel like I'm learning on the job. I'm, I'm working with some of the best people at the times and really really getting an education, to be honest. It's it's really wonderful to work with people who have been doing this for so much longer and – they're, they're kind of teaching me. It's really wonderful. Yeah, what the, what you're doing at the Times just has to be repeated. We had Emily Weinstein on recently, and, nice. and just yeah. has to be repeated how great of like effort and work you yeah. guys are all doing collectively. Thanks. Thank you. It, it feels like a really um, creative place, too. Everyone's really supportive of each other because everyone's just kind of really good at what they do. Yeah. And then it's a really supportive environment, but it also feels incredible to get to work, to get to learn from everyone, just like – however the hierarchy is it's everyone's learning from everyone because it's food and cooking and and writing and um that and it feels like uh, this sounds like an ad for <laughs> NYT cooking but um it, it feels like Hogwarts sometimes mm-hmm. like I really do feel like I'm in school but the the homework is like really fun if that makes I, sense. It, it shows in the copy it really does <laughs> segueing to a conversation we had we were having a, a lunch at Chodangal in New York great place on, on oh 35th so street Right, thirty fifth. Yeah, thirty fifth. But we, you, you make this comment. I love it. It's like uh, one thing I've noticed, just as an example, is that Korean Atlanta Korean food is way better than Manhattan Korean food, except for places like Chodongal where we're eating. Yeah. And I wanted to get that on Mike because <laughs> no. controversial topic. But you were not trolling at all, and I know exactly what you mean. But I wanted you to kind of unpack that a bit. Yeah, I, I thought about this some more. I, I've always had this sense that at least the food on Thirty Second Street. A lot of it's fast. A lot of it's catered to um, a wider audience than maybe the Korean food in Atlanta would be catering to, which is, you know, catering to the Korean immigrants who moved to Atlanta mm-hmm. probably around the 80s, 90s. So the food is kind of like a specific kind of food. Um, and that's what I grew up with. So I think I should amend it by saying the food that I find comforting and that I grew up with sure. is what I find in places like Choldangol, which is more like old fashioned than. Um, than some of these other restaurants. With that said, I have some Korean friends who have taken me to really wonderful places that are bringing Korea, Korea to Koreatown in Manhattan, and that feels really nice. It's um, I wouldn't be able to tell you the names of the restaurants, but sure. <laughs> but it's uh, eating the food at some of these places, you really feel like you're in Korea, and what I mean by that is I, I always remember going to Korea and getting the updated version of the food or something. Sure. It just feels so innovative and exciting and and because that's their business model to always innovate and to um I haven't been in a while and you're you've been recently, but I'd love to know from your perspective, like how how's the food there now? Well, I agree with you fully about the innovation and and you know, Dookie and I are working on Korea Korea World, our next yeah, book and, and incredible. a big section of it is about modern Korea. And you're so right, Eric, and I, I think it's such a great point of how you're getting that like turning of the page of certain dishes in Korea yeah. when you're in Korea. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've written a lot about modern Korea and there's more to be said. I wanted to segue back to New York because I think places like Her Name is Han and Take 32 mm-hmm. or Take 31 feel like Seoul or Busan, right. like urban Korea. Right. But then, you know, like I'm 
like it's a tough it's a tough thing to peg how New York like right now is probably one of the most exciting places for Korean food. Yeah. I, I wrote down some names like Hey Nona, Jumak. Jumak is yeah. incredible. Sobak down in like on Canal Street. Of course, Auto Mix and Auto Boy. Yeah. There's Lee Say that just opened as a dessert studio, all yeah. run by Koreans or Korean Americans. Yeah. So New York, are you feeling this as well? This yeah, I, I think so. I think all the new restaurants and the new chefs who are coming out are so talented, so incredible. Um, this isn't a new restaurant, but I ate at Insa the other day. Oh, yeah. I didn't get to do the karaoke, but <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Sohi Kim's food and, and her cookbook especially. But, wow, that meal was incredible. I just remember feeling so... It's so weird how we do this, but I felt so proud to be Korean when oh. I ate there. I was like, wow, this f- this food is incredible. And she knows how to make money. <laughs> just like the way she created that space for the karaoke and in a place um, like Brooklyn. Um, I'm just fascinated by all of this talent and all of the different interpretations of Korean food. They're all so creative and wonderful. Um, I, you know, I think I think I get I get a taste of that food because of my job, maybe, mm-hmm. and because of like research and and people who introduced me to other people. But Esther Choi is someone whose food I'm always watching. Like she she cooks with so much sonmat. Like, mm-hmm. she has such a characteristic flavor that I can eat her food and know that it's her food. Um, I think you have these voices um, like Esther and, and Sohi, and they're both... People like that are just so um, so inspiring. They're, mm-hmm. they're doing a lot with Korean food in, in exciting ways. I really loved listening to uh, Chihe mm-hmm. on your podcast. Chihe Kim, Miss yeah, Kim, a wow. wonderful chef from I, Ann Arbor. I can't wait to eat at her restaurant. Yeah. But um, she's she's wonderful, too. I, I love the way she talked about Korean food. I love Jihei's thoughts on Korean food. I agree, yeah. uh, Eric. She's, yeah. uh, I mean, she wants to work on Joseon Dynasty yeah. era cuisine, which is a, a, absolutely f- another yeah. world of fun. Korean cooking. And her, her book idea has, like, the K-pop element, right? I know. <laughs> I, I know. I'll, I'll link to that wonderful <laughs> episode. Um, but, like, let's talk about your book because I think uh, there's been breakout recipes, I feel. Yeah. Uh, you know, your times writing is always breaking out because you're in the app and, you're, you know, folks are cooking. But let's talk about this black sesame mochi cake, which I've made four <laughs> times. I love it. I don't bake at all, personally, and I've made it. And I've served it at dinner parties for friends, and they've all been, like, so astounded by the texture. Yeah. I, um, I'm so glad to hear that. I, I, I agree that that recipe is so easy. I, I really enjoyed developing it because I wasn't trying to cut corners or anything. There was just nothing to it. Like, it's, you know, butter mochi, those kinds of cakes are so chill. Mm-hmm. So, so one bowl. And, um, and that cake has shown up on my feed a significant number of times for sure. I, I think it's because, hmm, it must be the, the black sesame aspect of it. I guess it, I think the texture is the most surprising, though. Um, a lot of people have never had duck. They've never had that fla- that kind of wonderful chewiness, and I think that flavor, um, it really reminds me of home because of the toasted sesame oil. I love ingredients like that where or flavors that you can amp up with another thing. I have a lot of examples of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for sesame, it's whenever you're making a sesame dessert, it won't really taste like sesame until you add toasted sesame oil. Let's say you want something to taste like pizza, Tomato paste and oregano, dried mm-hmm. oregano. Those two things will get you there. Um, and then, like, poultry seasoning, sage, those kinds of flavors make you think of chicken. Roast chicken, like the yeah. classic Sunday roast chicken. Even yeah. if you're not um, eating the actual thing. Anyway, that's a random. I like the idea. <laughs> when you when you bake with sesame oil, you are taking it to a place. Yeah. Uh, the black sesame seeds, sometimes you're not getting fresh enough products and you're not yeah. getting that actual fragrance. But I think that's a big part of that that. that that mochi cake is that sesame yeah. oil in there. Sesame flavor. I have another example. Yeah. So the cake Love that's it. it's going up tomorrow actually. It's a chocolate cherry cake. And I've always felt that almond extract tasted like cherries. So I like adding almond extract to anything that I'm, you know, flavoring with cherry in some way. And so the cake has a little almond extract in there. And if you actually look at it, um, almond ex- almonds are, are in the same family as cherries. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. They kind of like look similar to their pits. But they're um they're also both part of the rose family. And I, and I only know this because I'm allergic to rose family fruits, like mm. when they're raw. I think it's been enough years for me to experiment, but I'm, I, know, I never have like a Benadryl or an EpiPen on me to have test Have you done it. the test? Have you done the swabs in I, your arm? I have. Nothing yeah. really came out of that. Those tests don't 
or the one I did like years ago. It wasn't testing for Rose family. Okay. Raw love pe- raw fruits. It's a really specific. It's like peaches, plums, um, apples aren't. I don't know if those are Rose family, but I'm I'm allergic to raw apples. Oh but, wow. But I don't know. I I think my your body changes, and I think I might not be allergic to those things anymore. And but I, I always wonder what I'm missing out on. Do you? How often do you bite into like a raw apple? I bite into a raw <laughs> apple. I would say between um, eight and fourteen times a week. <gasps> I I oh. love raw apples, and I oh. I buy. I was just at the farmers cool. market with a friend, and I was like, I buy five days, seven of wow. these every Friday afternoon, wow. morning. Oh. I I love raw apples, mm. but, but upstate New York and West Michigan, right, 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 two right. places where I live. Nice. And I, they both have wonderful apples. Yeah. Sorry for that long answer. No, I love that answer. <laughs> I, I was hoping you would say apples suck. Don't you don't have to test out your allergy, Sorry, Eric. But I think I have to because I love them so much as a kid, and I would also have apple juice with my dinner every night. And then I think I just oversaturated my body with it, and I poisoned myself. That's what I think. It, it's it's plausible <laughs> to a, to an uneducated person like myself. Um, yeah. like medical <laughs> medicine. What about the peach though? You are not enjoying a perfect peach. <laughs> no, no. Oh, um, they're so hard to find. They're very hard to find. But when find. you find a great peach, it's my. They're very hard goodness. to find. I actually tried to. I was developing a fruit salad recipe, and I wanted it to be yellow for some reason. I just like wanted it to be look like a certain way. So I had the idea of peaches to go with the pineapple mm-hmm. and the mango, but. The peaches were so awful. I could I couldn't even get the flesh off the pit. It was so hard. So I was like, oh f that. So I um it, I actually yeah. added bananas, and it tasted great. Like thinly sliced banana, but kind of the banana that has a little green at the edges. Um, I love that flavor as a salad with like a little lemon juice and salt and those three. Always salt and in, in, in salt. fruit salad. I agree with you. A little maybe a little MSG even just a tiny Ooh, that'd touch. Be good. I like to have that little mm. bit of extra. Bananas are polarizing in fruit salad. I think bananas I can know. turn fruit salad south for you some. You have to yeah, I know. But you have to cut them the right way. So I cut them crosswise into coins but very thinly. Yes. And they're very sturdy. So and they mix with the pineapple chunks and mango yes. chunks, and it's it's sort of like a smoothie and fruit salad form. So it looks really appealing, and fun. it's actually great because the mango and the pineapple are so acidic, and you want the banana for relief, and it tastes really nice. I don't know. Um, we talked about your solantang noodles in the, in in the spring, right. and you wanted you know you're hoping that would break out, and I just wanted to get. I love talking to authors, you know, uh, some time after the book is out. Are there recipes that have broken out, meaning like you've gotten you know hit up in your feed that you're like, wow, I, I that one really is getting cooked a lot, and I was surprised. Yeah, there are a few things. Um, a lot of people made the cover recipe, the chicken. I don't. I don't know why that's surprising to me, but I think it's because frying sucks so much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and um. Even I've only made that recipe a few times because mm-hmm. um, frying is so hard. And um, so a lot of people made the fried chicken, and I was glad they did because that's something I do enjoy eating. It's a really good recipe from my aunt. But um, uh, another thing is there's a weeknight curry rice with uh, eggplant, spinach, wow. and lotus root. I've not made that one. Yeah, it doesn't have a picture. I'm I've been calling it the <laughs> the all too well ten minute version of my book and that's a really annoying deep reference to a taylor swift song that was like a fan favorite but not like a single that the record record label kind of would push but yeah so it's definitely one of those and the people who do the daring people who decide to make a a recipe that doesn't have a photo those are the people who are rewarded by this meal that i made for my family one night it wasn't supposed to be in the book but i um they they were like this should be in the book it was really good so it's like (laughs) such a humble thing that ended up in the book because it was the, it was dinner it was like a true evening that we were having and so that's why I like that recipe and hope I'm hoping more people make it so that one day we do get a photo of it and <laughs> do you ever cook the f- recipes in cookbooks that don't have photos? I do all the time because <laughs> I agree with you it is a bit of yeah. a, a challenge but sometimes they read so well I think mm. Melissa Clark has most of her nice. uh you know f- most of the uh, recipes have photos but sometimes yeah. they don't and I I've, I've definitely on my way towards cool. Alison Roman uh, her mm. first book has a uh, parfait I think it is without a photo that ah. I make all the time cool. I, I think it's that. a parfait don't quote me on that one I think you get rewarded for doing that like having a little faith Faith. It's there's yeah. something about the recipe that doesn't have a photo it's like someone didn't fight for it enough but the author if the author included it it's usually important to the author I think see I agree <laughs> that's well said I think sometimes with the photo shoots of these books it's like it's not that we don't want to have a photo with every recipe. It's that sometimes we 
have other priorities. We yeah, want to yeah. show our readers. Yeah, it's not like those recipes aren't good, right? Mm-hmm. They're there for a reason. They're, they're taking up space. I think that's the thing I learned the most was how much you have to cut out. I'm really glad that yeah. I, like, I need to be edited. I, I need editors who like pull me back because I like go too far sometimes. And so I did file like 1,500 extra words to Rec Hell, and I'm like just so glad. Oh, you're lucky. That's that's not bad. <laughs> that's not bad. Some people do 15,000 extra words. Oh, I said 15. I meant 15,000. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, like, yo, 15,000 is more. <laughs> oh, no, I filed 1,500 I was like, 1,500. We can, like, do a little no, margin no. adjustment and I get, think you, I, get you going. <laughs> I think when I filed to you, I actually did file, like, 1,500 over. Pretty sure you did. Um, you're so it. sweet. <laughs> Anyway, that was funny. But um, the editors have to be given credit when they get the 15K, and they, I mean, sometimes they'll just yeah. kick it back. Oh, be I like, know. yo, like, take oh. 15 off, and now, and now I'm going to read it. Oh, yeah. Draco was very generous. Yeah. She was like, I think it was helpful to be explained that it, it's truly just physical. Like, you literally have an 8 by 11 book, or however big it is, and this many pages, and this much space. So it was fun to be given the option to... Instead of cutting out essays, I cut out recipes. And those yeah. reci- those recipes I developed further, and they'll be in a future book someday. Yeah. Definitely. Let's talk about your pizzas. I made your pizzas. Oh, oh yeah. Those I are really fun. liked those. Those are really the corn delicious. Cheese yeah. pizza? Those are fun. I like that recipe because it encouraged my mom to cook that for herself for lunch. And it's perfect for someone like my mom who has a garden because you sort yeah. of just you can top it with whatever vegetables you have. She's done cherry tomatoes to success, but. The corn one is really good. I like the corn one. Yeah. Let's talk about another recipe. It's not from your book, but from the from New York Times. And you had this really clever recipe about, called Anyfis Jorum. Oh, yeah. Thanks. And I really love the way that you oh, are articulating Jorum, like a, a, a braise, right? Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to get, like, into articulating these traditional Korean dishes for, like, the New York Times audience. Right. Do you read the comments? Do you read what how yeah, your readers uh, your readers are interpreting like a jorum? Yeah, I, I read them sometimes. I, you know, the the chorim is sort of interesting because it's part of my, it was part of my effort with those 10 recipes. The Times asked me to write 10 of the most important Korean recipes to me. And I think what I wanted to sh- offer was home cooking, like what, it, what, what 10 recipes might look like in a home. And my mom made chorims all the time. She made undegu chorim, which mm. was a black cod yeah. braise, and it was just her, such an elegant and kind of expensive dish. Like, you know, black cod is pretty expensive, and um, it's just so wonderful because it's not just about the fish, actually. It's about the radish. Um, my mom makes it with these huge radish mm-hmm. steaks, the Korean radish steaks, and they're, they're absolutely soaked in that soy sauce, um, garlicky, gingery kind of broth but also take up all of the black cod's fat, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's really great over white rice. Like, that was always, that's often sitting on the stove, like, waiting for us. Like, my mom was someone who cooked and would go to work, so there was always, like, something on the stove. And so it was either a, a chige or, like, um, a, a meat or maybe a rice dish. Because um, it would hold. The jerum would hold. Yeah, it yeah. totally holds. And yeah. you can microwave it if you want, but you don't really need to. Anyway, that, yeah, that that dish, I think... To be honest, wasn't that popular? <laughs> I think. It, I think. With, yeah, no, it's not. Like, it, it's hard to. It's actually. It's hard to get people to cook fish. To be honest, that's not salmon, or shrimp, but um, I do think I wanted to give people the truth, which was this is a very common type of dish that people make at in Korean homes, and I think, um, and I also wanted to give people the blueprint because. It, I called it any fish chorim because you truly can use whatever you have. Which and is so cool that you yeah. don't really specify. Yeah, and specific you know, fish. fatty cuts work best. But I was in Philadelphia actually with my with my partner uh, when I was developing that recipe, and he he lives in a nice area, but it's the Asian grocery stores are pretty limited, so mm-hmm. um, we had to we had, we had to just pick up some salmon steaks, and they were delicious. They they were great, and they tasted very Korean and. Um, I, I don't know. I just salmon steaks, to... just like fillets, or like actual frozen salmon. No, uh, salmon steaks. Oh, steaks. I yeah, yeah. Said sticks. Okay. Oh, no, no. oh yeah, salmon <laughs> steaks. Right. Like right on. Yeah, the, the Fish real sticks. Yeah, I was like, mm. are you doing salmon sticks? I was like, yo, like, let's go there. I'm very interested in this this technique. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but you know how salmon steaks are just so so fatty. And oh they have, yeah. Like, bones and they're, I love the cut. It's just such, such an a... underrated cut. I think people think it's like somehow like lower quality than like yeah. the straight up like 
yeah. fillets, but yeah. the steaks, they've got so the bones in them, but they're so fatty. I love so it. So much better. Uh, there's a comment in one. I just want to touch base because it, it's an interesting comment. I hear it a lot, and I'm, I'm of course, uh, I'm not Korean, so I, I don't say things like this, but I believe it was a Korean uh, reader of yours. Is It's a bit surreal to see Korean food have this moment. And, like, the idea of moment, it kind of sticks with me a little bit because I'm wondering yeah. when you're asked about, like, Korean food's moment, yeah. how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I feel I feel mixed. I think for the most part, it is joy. It's like I kind of agree sometimes. I'm like, you know, I, I, I do think Mexican food as well. I do think that something's happening right now where, I mean, the word was added to the English dictionary last year, a mm. couple of years ago. Hallyu, just like the Korean yeah, wave. The wave, yeah. This <laughs> very specific word applied to Korean culture to talk about the spread and the globalization of Korean culture almost as um, like uh, an asset or like a cultural um, currency. And so K-pop and Korean food, uh, dramas, whatever, all of that, film, cinema especially. Um, and uh, and it's also something that happened really quickly. And I, I've had conversations with other Koreans about this. And I'm sort of like, is it just because we're, we're like so amazing? Like there's something <laughs> in the water, there's something in... The exceptionalism. The exceptionalism or the, the underdog story or like tr- having to... There's so much like intensity in the culture about like being exceptional. And I think that, that's like baked into the culture a little bit. So... Sometimes I think about that. But then, of course, going into the politics of the words, I, I often want to say, like, you know, n- no one, no one's a moment. Like, I think um, these yeah. cuisines have existed for centuries. It's a matter of how are you going to translate it to an audience that isn't as familiar. And so that's something that I consider a very, like, political process that I, I take very seriously. And so writing a piece like that about Korean food to, to be honest, frankly, mostly a mostly white audience um, – I, did, I wanted to be clear, but I also didn't want to dilute it. Or, um, And I, I think when I get those comments from Koreans and Korean, other Korean-Americans, um, I know what they mean. I know what they mean. Because I know there's that moment, the first time you see, like, Korean food in a very mainstream setting. It happened to me, like, a long time ago. But for some people, it happens for the first time. Maybe they open the Times or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But um, I do think there's something to be said for that experience um feeling yourself be, like being represented on the page i feel it when i pride. watch it's it's a lot of pride i yeah. feel i feel it um whenever i watch um you know a netflix series that's starring a, a korean woman as the lead um i'm thinking of it to all the boys yeah. <laughs> i yeah. love before i love Great. that lana um candor she's so amazing um or you know Japanese breakfast. Oh yeah, Japanese Just breakfast. See, like, I mean, like, I got to meet her for the first time the other day. Are you guys like friends? She's, yeah. I'd like to think we're internet friends. She was so nice, so cool, and um, she she interviewed me at uh, at a, at a church of all places for like, <laughs> for like a book event. But yeah, it was so cool to be around her. She's definitely a good example of someone. Yeah, Michelle's on her. Michelle's on her. So yeah. exceptional. Um, very proud to. It's so weird that we have like I think it's a Korean thing to be proud of, like, being the same nationality or, like, having our parents be of the same nationality. It's so funny. It's And, and about Hallyu, there's a book yeah. uh, by Yuni Hong called uh, The Birth of Korean Cool. Great book. Love that Such book. Such a yeah. great book. And, I, and it's a little bit older now, and I know she followed it up with a second book. But to your point, I think there there is a level of strategy uh, that the Korean government made to yeah. export Korean yes. culture to yes. the world, China in particular, yeah. the largest economy in the world. And right. America and yeah. and so clearly there was some uh, strategy and yes. there we are now having seen the net benefits of that of that investment. Yeah. So there is a bit of like tactical work there with yeah. with what's happened. Yeah. I think that's interesting, but of course, you know, it's not a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a tough word. I mean, I feel without having the the family ties, but just like writing about Korean food, I feel like moment just makes it feel like it's going to go away. Yeah, that's the that's that's the the political kind of undertone of yeah. that word. With that said, there, like someone who's excited that Korean food is having a quote unquote moment, I'll take that over the person who is <laughs> the person who responds, "Oh no, don't 
you know, why did you like reveal our secrets to the? Oh yeah, you know, and I hate that. Yeah, um, that's tough. This this gatekeeping, this toxic gatekeeping of culture. Um, when I wrote about egg rice, um, this Asian guy tried to cancel me and erase my name. From, survived. I survived Eric from Kim. it. <laughs> Your name is not canceled. <laughs> I think. I think for me, it's like these people who I don't really understand the need to gatekeep food. It's something that I I want to share, and I, I get. Not wanting to, I, I get like wanting to be in control of how a narrative that you consider your own should be shared. Um, I feel that way about like my parents' story, for instance, which is why I wanted to be sure that I was the one to tell it, not someone else. And um, and I think I don't know. I think people act, people react in the way that they do for a lot of like psychological reasons that I. I, I psychoanalyze people all the time, but it's also like uh, a bit of a, a tinderbox <laughs> with like social media, yeah, some yeah, of this yeah. gatekeeping. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it like explodes in a way sometimes that's like super unnatural. Yeah, it's it's interesting when it happens. I I'm never like engaging with it. I'm more of like interested in why that person is thinking that way, and I often know why because it's mm-hmm. there's sort of like a scarcity mindset when it comes to. Cuisines that maybe aren't as represented or hadn't been historically as represented. and But I don't know. I think I'm really grateful to be working in a time when I get to write about this stuff with with nuance. And I, I feel like I don't have to... I feel like I can just write about it and it feels just natural and I'm not, I'm not trying to be the... The Korean food guy. I'm just, I'm just writing. That's about. why we love your work, Eric. I mean, I speak for everyone. Um, it's not forced, right? It feels extremely natural. Use that word just now, and I feel that's really. We, I appreciate it. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Let's segue over to just talk about summer. I want to like hear what you've been, <laughs> you know, making in your home kitchen. Is there any? Are there any breakthroughs? I know you're talking about this this chocolate and cherry cake, which sounds with almond extract sounds great. But anything else that we can look forward to? Okay, so it, I feel like it's been a while since I put out a chicken recipe, like a, <laughs> like a new chicken recipe, yeah. I think. And so I've been working on these chicken recipes and really thinking about the user. And there's a lot of pressure. I think a lot of people maybe aren't interested in developing chicken recipes, but the reason I want to do it is because I know that <laughs> uh, – how do I say this? I just know that when you put out a chicken recipe and uh, one that's like very successful, then – a lot it will fold into people's lives in a very serious way and like they will make it forever. I, I've had like a few recipes that do this and they're often it's not always chicken, but like the gochugara salmon is something that people really make. Totally. But there's like a difference between the recipes that come out of reporting and the recipes that I'm developing in order for people to just have a nice meal and to delight them and delight myself too, because I have to be interested in this because I have to cook this a thousand mm-hmm. times. And so I've been working on these recipes that taste really good and I've been playing with um, one for one of them I've been playing a lot with parsley and um, it sounds really boring but I think I love making people taste the ingredient that they don't that they might not re- actually realize they know what it tastes what like what does parsley taste like so. Eric? I have to ask you because like parsley is definitely flat leaf parsley is a definitely a real bane for some recipe from home cooks we just like yeah, yeah, yeah. skip that step because we're like why? yeah 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 I always Garnish, I wrote about that I wrote about that a nice. few years ago nice. um Whenever there's a step that says garnish with parsley, I never do it. Um, but, <laughs> you know, when I use parsley, I use it like a salad leaf. Like, I love tasting it. And um, and I think it tastes very vegetal. This isn't very – sound very appetizing, but it tastes like the way grass smells. <laughs> yeah. And I think grass smells good. Um, it's sort of this – it's got this herbalness that feels really nice when paired with garlic and, you know, some other ingredients that help it come out. But um, – it's just a leafy green. It's like a leaf, and so it tastes like a leaf. And mm-hmm. sometimes I want that flavor. And um, if there's a way to balance it with, you know, salt and acid and, and sweetness, um, it it becomes a way for people to taste this thing that they they've had their whole lives. But like maybe they're like, I like making people go, oh, that's what that tastes like. And so that's that's, that's my kind of my goal for this. Because like in Korean cuisine, parsley is is almost non-existent in some ways, yeah. right? Because, I mean, it's perilla or, or right. ver- I mean, um, yes. minari. Scallions. Yeah, I think there are, like, certain kinds of greens that are more esoteric that might be used. But um, it's, it's like, the kind of thing that if I eat a salad that has a little parsley in it, like pars- whole parsley leaves, um, I feel really, like, 
healed or something. So dope, yeah. It feels like clean and healthy or something. I love that. We don't like those words in food media, but I, I can't think of another way to describe the, ta- the taste Pure. of something. Yeah, when something tastes pure, Straightforward. tastes something tastes like it's um, cutting through the like, the richness. Yeah, and I like when things do that, and parsley does that for me. Yeah, I yeah. I, I like it, and and I, I don't think about it enough, so I'm gonna can't wait to <laughs> read more about it. Yeah, are you going on vacation? Oh, am I going on vacation? Like it's summer. I, I just have to, like. Oh no, yeah, yeah. I I'm I get to um, for the most part, stay in New York, which I'm really excited about because I've been I've been traveling so much and mm-hmm. it feels really good to just. I feel like I'm getting closer to my dog. Actually, mm-hmm. it's really weird, That's... but she just turned ten yesterday, so we were celebrating by um, cuddling and <laughs> so <laughs> we, we 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 like cuddle a lot. But I'm going to Hawaii. Um, excited about that. The University of Hawaii invited me to speak at a conference, and I'm I'm trying to trying to turn it also into like a, another reported story. Um, kind of been working with my editors to figure out. What a great! My dad graduated from there. <gasps> he did. Yeah, oh, U of H, baby. Wow, yeah. yeah, the rainbows. Oh, cool. Rainbow warriors. Yeah. Oh, cool. Dude, I, so what yeah. are you gonna report on? I don't know yet. What should I report on? I, I have some ideas, but not really. Not really sure. Not really sure. I might have to just go there. I think you have to go there. And That's eat, eat things and meet people and see. Meet things. Yeah. Uh, see where the story is. Umeki's, I think, oh. is for for anything in a bowl, poke or nice. or, or salads. Umeki's yeah. is my spot. And oh, cool. On the Big Island. Nice. Um, yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> thank you for asking. I mean, <laughs> right now I'm just thinking about West Michigan. I'll, I'll be spending oh, some time there with my lovely. with my family. Yeah. Yeah, I love West Michigan. I go there a couple times a year, several times a year. I love it there. Uh, So we asked this final question. We did this past past October. So I don't want to ask you the final question. Our listeners know what that is. It's about a dream cookbook (laughs) project. So we heard about your dream cookbook project, but I want to hear about book two because you mentioned yeah. the top <laughs> and like I, I I ambitious guy you're going right into book two but I yeah. think we all kind of want to see it because okay. we love book one yeah I I don't mind talking about it anymore because I'm trying to manifest it into existence which means I just have to write an essay I, I need to write a little bit of it in order for the proposal preach for the manifest pro- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really excited about this one it's um we kind of just my agent and I decided that the second book will be a collection of essays yes and well, you told me this months ago and I was yeah. like I hope this happens <laughs> I'm excited about it because I think writing the essays in the cookbook that was probably the most fun for me and it, I just like a different kind of writing ha- comes out when you have that much more space um, and the longevity. And so there's something I'm really intrigued by the essay form still and how I can still grow in it. And so I have all these really crazy essays in mind. They're they're very multi-plot, but they're nonfiction. And they each have a theme and each of them will end with a recipe. So that's my that's my pitch to... To the, to the people, uh, not not easy. <laughs> been done a lot. Been yeah. done to different levels of success. But man, I love yeah. reading your writing. So Thank I you. I can't wait to yeah. read this. I can't wait to write it. <laughs> <laughs> and you have the most killer title that we won't, of course, surpri- uh, spoil the surprise. But oh, yeah, if that yeah, ever yeah. makes it through, it's an amazing title. Yeah, thanks, thanks. We'll, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> Eric Kim, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Eliza Barbernell, thank you for joining. We're going to do three things. I'm ready. Three things. Because, you know, we have this tradition of doing three things. Anna and I used to do it. Shout out to Anna. I hope things are good at Epicurious. I'm sure you're not listening to this. No no, no hate. Hi, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> you better be listening. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, let's go over our three things. What is one of your three things? Okay. So the first thing that I was thinking about on Saturday at the farmer's market was donut peaches. Yeah. And for a while I thought that they were just a gimmick specifically grown for kids' lunchboxes, which no disrespect to that game, but (laughs) not how I live my life. (laughs) But then I realized they're actually amazing. They're the perfect size for you to hold in your hand and eat while walking around somewhere. Yeah. Which lately I've been wanting a lot of fruit on the go, and a a big peach is is a little unwieldy for me, and the donut peaches I think – are really fun, and you can grab a couple also and just kind of carry them around with you. It's fun to have, like, palm three of them. Yes. It's really fun. Question, do donut peaches by nature 
just by the shape of them and the way they kind of work in your mouth? Do they do they taste sweeter to you by like just by the shape? Mm. I was thinking about this. You know how people like, oh, if you drink Coke from a glass bottle, it tastes better, yeah. that concept. I don't know if it tastes sweeter, but I think the texture is really nice. Like the ratio of skin to flesh is almost like a mini M&M as opposed to a big M&M. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that they don't um, get as mushy because I don't know why they don't get as mushy. Maybe like the shape affects the fact that they're not being condensed as much. They're smaller, so maybe there's less to get like to rot. I don't know. This is like a botany question or yeah. a, a horticulturist would, would be able to answer this question. I should have Googled why are donut peaches so good <laughs> on the subway coming up here. <laughs> Instead, I just looked at all the pictures I've taken of them on my phone. And they're, they're very, um, yeah, I'm into donut peaches. I'm, that's my go-to yeah. peach right now. Do you uh, have a farmer's market of choice in New York City? Um, I have Fort Greene Farmer's Market, yeah. I think, is, is is my local, and it's quite good. Uh, the Toygo Orchard stand there is my yeah. preferred, and they have white and yellow donut peaches. On the, note, on, the, on the note of peaches, I have noticed this summer the peaches season in the Northeast in New York has been excellent. I've noticed this. Previous years, I've had issues with, like, sweetness and texture and mealiness in particular, but for whatever reason, it could be we had a very dry uh, spring and early summer. Maybe that's the reason, but I've found the acidity to be fucking perfect. Oh, they've been really good, yeah. which is not good because I'm spending all of my money on peaches and tomatoes right now. Yeah, right? Like, literally just eating. I could just eat my cash and it would go faster. But <laughs> I know, right, right. It's right. worth it. I, I feel like peaches are uh, upstate where I live in Goshen at the Goshen Farmer's Market. It's a little bit easier on the a wallet than in, in Union Square. Yeah, the gas prices to get down here, that's all <laughs> impacting the peach in, like, index. Yeah, the peach index. Okay, okay. cool. What's yours? Well, I have one cookbook uh, to talk about. I'm only talking about one. We'll have a fall preview at some point. You and I will we'll chop it up about the fall season. And we have Paul Forbes on the podcast, maybe previously, maybe in the future. I'm not sure when we're running it. But we didn't talk about this cookbook for whatever reason, and it's amazing. It's called Rambutan. Mm. Uh, it is a book. Cynthia Shanmugalagan. I think I got that right. Cynthia's going to come over. She's coming over. She's a London-based chef. And this is a book that really dives into the foods of Sri Lanka. And I, uh, we've written about Sri Lanka. We've written about tea in Sri Lanka. Um, but I personally have never really learned about the food from a cookbook. I've, I've never um, had that opportunity. And I think Rambutan has been able to unlock a lot of cool dishes and just the, the regionality of, um, of, the, of the small island nation. Um, and uh, I just thought Alex Lau, who I'm working with on a cookbook as well. He shot the photos, and I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I was going to say, I worked with Alex at Bon Appetit, and his photos are so beautiful and distinct. And they are. Um, as soon as we started looking at that cookbook together, I, I had a hunch that um, that he was maybe involved. But also the food itself is so vibrant that yeah. it just lends itself to having beautiful images. Yeah, it's great. I, uh, I hope to catch up with Cynthia and hear more about her story um, about living in London and writing about uh, the foods of Sri Lanka. Uh, what is yours? Okay, my second one is is something that I have been ranting to you about that I just think is <laughs> is my job to tell more people about because um, I was rereading Jordan uh, Michaelman's piece about when peanut butter got so cool uh-huh. and Maranatha peanut butter is yeah. to me the best peanut butter out there right now. It's not a new peanut butter. Yeah. They've been making it for a while, but it's so fudgy. And you don't have to stir it at all, even if you buy the kind that it says you have to stir. It's been very hot in my apartment. Mm-hmm. There's been no stirring happening. There's just been <laughs> yeah. eating off of the spoon. It's When you have good peanut butter, I feel like it makes it just makes your life uh, better because your spoons are always dirty, right? You're always <laughs> dipping it. Like every available spoon is in that peanut butter jar. Yeah, and I at first I was buying it with the purpose of making peanut noodles um, yeah. or this like weird breakfast that I do where I mix Greek yogurt and peanut butter together to make like a kind of cream cheese frosting, but not like a real frosting, um, like a breakfast frosting. Ooh, sounds great. It is is very good. But then I just started eating it plain (laughs) with an apple and I I was like, why am I getting two spoons dirty when I could just be dipping apples directly into the jar? So that's kind of where I'm at emotionally with my peanut butter consumption. Apple season's approaching. Might need to get another jar. Oh, yeah, maybe like four, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I have to shout out Cake Zine, the zine you run, your co-editor and founder of it. Are you doing any peanut butter content and, and upcoming issues? Oh, that's a good question. I just had a, an idea for another issue. I don't know if I should be saying 
yeah. concepts that haven't come out yet, but <laughs> I'm gunning for it. So now I'm going to manifest it. Yeah, you're going to manifest it. I really want to do midnight snack as yeah. a theme. We're That's trying cool. to eventually pivot out of cake. We did sexy cake for the first issue. We're doing wicked cake for fall right now. Yep. And then I think we'll probably do another baked good that is not cake. Mm-hmm. And I think once we do that, then we have this whole kind of entry point into other That's- things. Cake scenes red. I uh, I definitely I suggest picking it up. And and what's the website? www.cakezine.com. It's a great domain. You you really grabbed that one. That's yeah. Good. We it's, somehow no one else thought about doing a magazine only about cake. I, I can't imagine <laughs> why not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's your second one? My second one is I just got back from Portland, so I have to like have a little bit of a moment about the places I visited because I hadn't really been on the road to do research um, like this in a while. I've been in a little bit of traveling for Korea World and I was in D.C. recently as well. But this was like a real 48 hours in town. I was rolling solo and meeting up with a bunch of friends. So I want to like go over a few places I visited. Have you been to Portland recently? I'm going in two weeks. My twin sister lives there. So this is personally useful to me. Well, interesting I hope I don't come off as a noob. I haven't been there in many years, but I'll go over a few things. Okay, so first off, I'd never been to Ken Forkish's bakery slash pizzeria. I went to both. Mm. Ken Forkish, author of ours, tremendous, legendary uh, baker from Portland, obviously. Um, and I have to say I had the uh, the cherry tomato and pancetta pizza. It was Oof. fucking great. It was perfect. That's one. Almost takeaway. So fun. Been there when it was Whiskey Soda Lounge. It's, it's pivoted to a new... Owner, um, I had the soft shell crab sandwich. Like, absolutely perfect. So good. So good. What kind of bread was it on? Uh, it was on a light roll. I'd say a Portuguese roll, potentially. Mm. I think I can't I, – I wish I had my, my, my gram in front of me. I, I loved it. It was it was delicious. That was at the end of my second day, and I was kind of, like, tapped out, but I, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But I was mostly there – I was there for a couple of things. I was checking out Khan, Greg Gorday's new restaurant, which is um, – Beautiful, just wonderful. Greg is a uh, you know longtime Top Chef competitor and, and and Top Chef master. He's also a cookbook author. Um, he's re- released or, or opened a restaurant that I think is really cool. It's dairy free and gluten free, right? Very good for Portland. Very good for Portland. Very good for everywhere. Yeah, and and very good because it tastes good. When th- when, when when restaurants like take things out and then they actually are good, like the concept extracts some fun or whatever. Uh, it's a dietary-driven restaurant. I sometimes get a little bit itchy. But I thought he did a really nice job. I was there super early. It was like the first, second week they were open. He's also, it's kind of an homage to his uh, Haitian heritage. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to elevate and, and bring light to the Haitian cuisine, which I think uh, he should get a lot of credit for. But the one dish that I loved the most was a salad, which was cherries, cherry tomatoes, raspberries, mint, cilantro, and chili. Yum. Yeah. Perfect summer salad. But cherry tomatoes and cherries together, nice. Yeah. I had to take a pause when you said that. I felt like my brain was skipping because I've never had that together. Yeah. You don't think about cherry tomatoes as fruit, but it is technically, right? It has seeds. So, but mostly also I was there to research Korea World and just catch up with uh, Peter Cho, who's of Han Oak. I hadn't seen Peter in many years and he's doing great. Um, and I went to his other restaurant, Toki, and he just he's doing this amulpajan, which is a, a shrimp seafood pancake, mm. uh, which I love so much. And it's corn cheese. You know, corn cheese, you see it a lot at Korean restaurants, right? Like corn. I don't think I've had it before. It's like you see it at barbecue restaurants a lot. It's like corn and cream and usually some kind of mild cheese. Mm-hmm. But he he did it with a lot of cream, and it was really rich. It was in an afterthought. It was so – it was like kind of in a – uh, and a consuela. It was beautiful dish. Loved it. And, and so simple, you know? That sounds really great. And I'm, I'm planning a corn-themed dinner for the end of summer right now, and you're getting my, my gears turning a little bit. Korean barbecue corn corn cheese is, is, is a thought. Last place I want to shout out is the Ripe Co- Cooperative. Have you been there? No, I haven't. Naomi Pomeroy, uh, legend of the of the legend in the game of Portland. Mm-hmm. She uh, of Beast um, and Woodsman Tavern or Woods something Woodsman Tavern, I think it is. But she pivoted to um, this new Ripe Cooperative, which served as like a mercantile store um, plus uh, restaurant, and I just loved. What I what I had there, I had two simple things. Um, I had focaccia with plums and pecorino. Yum. Like, nice. And B- then baked in. Yeah, baked in. It was cool. Like the the crumb on the focaccia was beautiful. Like 
really just developed and sour and delicious. This poached albacore was such a great dish. Like, it had seaweed, and then it had a fava tonado. Mm. But it wasn't it wasn't too fishy. It was like more mild. It almost had the consistency of guacamole. And it wasn't like it wasn't like aioli. It wasn't creamy and salty. Tonado's great, but I this was like a different type of tonado. Which makes me think we should do a story about tonado. Yeah, I had a focaccia with tonado on it at Serangina Bakery over yeah. the weekend. Um very delicious and surprising to me. That's a surprising uh, combination of the two. I haven't been to Sargina in a minute. I remember I waited like three hours once there for dinner. <laughs> when you wait a place for three hours, you're like, eh. I, I remember doing that when like ramen <laughs> was having a big moment in the city. <laughs> and I would um, just take a book and go read somewhere for a while. I know, right? It sometimes feels that way when you have to do that. What's your third? My third is a savory scone that Yo. I had over the weekend at Daughter, which is a very good coffee shop and bakery here in Brooklyn in Crown Heights. Nice. Um, I believe that Tyler Kenny is doing the pastries there right now. And this was a scone that had lots of cheddar, lots of fresh corn, and chunky scallions yeah. mixed throughout it. And the cheddar on the top and the bottom got all toasty and kind of crunchy on the outside. Um, and I, I'm scared to admit this on a podcast, but I'm, I'm not a big egg eater. Um, so I'm always looking for a savory breakfast option that is not eggs. And Mm. this was very much what I wanted in that moment. And also like every morning since then. I love that you bring up savory scones. Underrated. Underrated for sure. Scones are much maligned because they're often bad, but I feel like scone hate is an old topic that we shouldn't re, you know, relitigate, but. We're not here to perpetuate scone Perpetuate is the word, exactly. We're all about pro-scone. Was there any kind of, like, butter or condiment or preserve that you you served with this scone? Oh, it was not served with anything, but it was so buttery. I mean, I would not say no to more butter in general, but I found that it was had a lot going on by itself, especially if you're drinking a coffee like I was and just kind of snapping off pieces of it together. I do think it would be very good with with butter or even um, maybe, like, a— herb salsa verde or something yeah. to go with it first thing in the morning it was it was very good and i had a very good plum um cake there that, that reminded me of the marion burroughs plum tort we've talked about that on the show i love that recipe we should get her on this on the podcast but i was trying to explain this to someone i said this is one of the first viral recipes yeah. of the pre-internet era Truly clipped you know, yellowed newspapers in boxes is I think, that plum tort recipe. I think my family has like four different clippings <laughs> of it in the recipe box. In the box. Oh. Yeah. And they all deserve to be there, honestly, in case I, you lose one. Yeah. Marion, she's she's a legend. I think she's retired by now. I think she is, but it'd be great putting that down there. Okay. Okay. What's your last one? My last one, I wanted to call it journalism and writing because I, I feel like uh, we, we talk about writers and, and one of my three things is uh, Jason Diamond's The Melt. Mm. Do you read Jason Diamond's writing? No, but now I feel like I'm behind. Jason is great. He used to edit at Punch, actually followed him in the features editor department there. Um, And he is now a writer mostly, and he writes books. But I I think Jason is somebody who I've always enjoyed because he has real passion for his topics and he really – enthusiasm. And and when you read enthusiasm, when you read um, excitement about the mundane or the old or – the 90s nostalgic, which is kind of his lane. Mm-hmm. I, I just enjoy that on top of high-quality writing. So The Melt is his Substack. It's free. And he's written about a lot of topics that kind of, as I said, it, it taps into 90s nostalgia, but also a little bit of travel. He just was at the Rose Bowl Flea, and he was writing about that and his personal experiences and kind of meditation on should I get there at 4.30 in the morning or not. I have asked myself that question many times. I have not, but if I was like trying to outfit an entire home in Los Angeles and I wanted to get the good furniture, I do think I'd go there that only, only because the anxiety yeah. of missing something very good is a motivational factor for me. I agree. I, I've been there. I've not gone early. I went at nine. I got coffee. I felt great. I definitely bought some shirts. I definitely bought some books, but I did not go there for furniture. So I, that's a good good, good advice, local knowledge. Yeah, I, I would say I, I'm from L.A., but I have not been to the Rose Wolf Flea in a while. So if, if I'm wrong about that, I would love to be told 
otherwise. I personally was a Melrose flea market um, devotee as someone that grew up on the west side. Yeah. But the Rose Bowl is definitely the holy grail the flea The holy markets. grail. Once a month, right? Still once a, sa- well, one Saturday a month? I think it's once Saturday a month. Yeah. They did a couple different things during the pandemic, but um, I did go recently. So worth it. Other topics Jason covers, covers the Sea and Cake Chicago, like post-rock band uh, Stussy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, explore core, which he coins. He's he's kind of into like coining core, and like he talks about '90s Banana Republic, mm-hmm. which is an which is a look that I can't personally get behind, but he writes about it. And it's quite quite good. I mean, he's like a menswear writer too. Yeah, he's giving off culture writer, how long gone adjacent kind of vibes based on what you're telling me. Yeah. Maybe that's its own core that we could come up with a name <laughs> exactly. for. Exactly. I think he is uh, a type of uh, a 40-year-old uh, ma- ma- <laughs> male uh, energy. Uh, but his greatest uh, achievement so far has been uh, not necessarily coining it. I can't give him full credit, but he's definitely been elevating the coverage of Spago Rock. Have what you, is Spago Rock? Oh, gosh, this is great. I'll link to it in the show notes. Spago Rock is a genre of highly synthesized, um, some would say corny in previous generations or future generations, <laughs> but others may just say it's incredible. Uh, the band Waiting for a Star to Fall by Boy Meets Girl or Higher Love by Steve Winwood. Oh, yeah. So it's like a 90s Spago, like wealthy. Like the restaurant? Yeah, like okay. Spago, the restaurant yeah. in Beverly Hills, Wolfgang Puck's restaurant. Spago core is like synthetic 90s pop music written by mostly white people about, you know, celebrating um, fashion and, um, you know, synthetic instruments. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think it sounds like it has a time and a place for sure, and maybe this is this is the time and place. Things are strange in general. Maybe like that's <laughs> the, the, the setting that we need. Yeah, I, I think uh, I wish we uh, we could do outro music because I would I would put a waiting for a start of fall. I know that song is likely in your head by now, listener. If you made it this far in our podcast. Oh yeah, I, I almost started singing it, and then I <laughs> rethought that for everyone's sake. Eliza Barbanel, thank you for joining. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.